Welcome again to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual church classroom podcast presented each week by Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, and hosted by yours truly, me, Pastor Dan, with the help of my daughter, Bethany. Each week we study the Bible together with you with the goal of knowing God's heart and mind with all of our heart and mind. And in so doing, we want to join as a family of faith, that is, the people of God and God's book and God's word and mind, and therefore we do so as a kind of virtual church, but it's not meant to replace that church that you should be a part of. You need the physical fellowship of the believers, so we urge you not to use this exclusively as your only form of worship and religion, but to find a place to be a part of a body of other Christians. I urge you to do this week in and week out because I know it's good for you and I love you and I want what's best for you. Now let's worship together. This is episode 24 of the Revelation Bible Study. It's recorded on... Uh, September the 22nd, 2018, and we read today Psalm 25, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to the shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous, without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God, my Savior, and my hope is in in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways according to your love. Remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is man? That fears the Lord. Who then is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me. And be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress, and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased, and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. For integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles.
God, we join with the psalmist today, David, asking that you make our our ways upright and blameless in your sight, that you keep our enemies at bay. And our enemies, Lord, they're your enemies. We have no one to fear, not with you on our side. And the only enemy that is of real consequence is Satan and his forces and those who would be aligned with him. So, Lord, we pray that you keep Satan at bay so that our lives might be an instrument of your grace and mercy in the world around us, that somehow we might be all that you ask us to be in a way that is pleasing to you, that sends a sweet fragrance into your nostrils. That is to say, Lord, we want to smell good to you, spiritually good, spiritually fit for the tasks upon us. Oh God, we want to serve you and love you and glorify you, especially when times are hard, especially when testing comes. Let us be your witnesses. Let us be those who boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ and who boldly serve those whom Christ loves dearly, so much so that he's died to save them. Oh God, have mercy on us as we pray, as we study together, and as we go about our lives, infused and filled with your spirit, changed and transformed by your love, we pray. Amen. ready to start on chapter 11 of Revelation now and so that's where we pick it up here Bethany we've got chapter 11 in front of us and uh, I hope you've been doing your homework I've done mine (laughs) you're not saying anything does that mean you haven't been doing your homework or are you just trying to be trying to embarrass dad no to to both (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right. Anyway, it is uh, it is chapter 11 now, and so where we left off, just for the sake of continuity, is, uh, you know, the whole world's gone to hell in a handbasket, literally, and uh, that's the only reason I could say that on a religious broadcast and not feel too bad about it. And uh, the last thing we saw was the really big angel with a little bitty book. And the really big angel we think was Jesus, maybe even holding the very scroll that was given to him from the throne, 
And, uh, you know, this is a time in world history when the lines between the uh, heavens and the earth are kind of blurred and the lines between the abyss and the earth are blurred. So it's conceivable that this huge celestial being is, uh, you know, simply doing what he's been doing in the presence of God and now in the presence of man and so to speak, or humanity. Uh, some, some, there's a lot of debate about whether this is Jesus or maybe Michael the Archangel or uh, something like that. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't change anything doctrinally. So it's not a problem if we don't know for sure who it is. But, uh, you know, uh, his appearance is described in a lot of the same ways that Jesus is described in like the Mount of Transfiguration and stuff like that. So that's one of the reasons we kind of have the, the idea that it might be Jesus. But <clears throat> then we got to chapter 11. And uh, so I'm wondering if maybe you'd like to read a little bit of chapter 11 and then we'll see where that takes us. Sure. The Two Witnesses. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty-two months. months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. You want me to keep going? All right. Well, let's to stop and talk about the let's temple. talk about the two uh, the temple for starters. Okay. Um, so you've been to the Temple Mount. I have. I have been there myself, and I even took you to a place on the Temple Mount and said, "Honey, if you don't forget, if you don't remember anything <laughs> else about this trip, remember this spot because it's ground zero for for all of human history, especially in the future." Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough. I may have been telling you wrong about that. It, it's not out of the question that I may have been a little wrong about that. And that's okay because we assume a lot based on human uh, discovery and human history. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but some, some uh, relatively recent archaeology has revealed that in all likelihood, that's not where the temple is located. Now, this is a, a, a prominent theory that hasn't been thoroughly proven yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is an interesting development that could create an opportunity for prophecy to be, to be fulfilled. Assuming that's the Temple Mount, that, that the actual Temple Mount that we celebrate now is the Temple is Mount, it is occupied by the Dome of the Rock. Yes. It's occupied by the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Mm -hmm. It is occupied by Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, it is secured by Israeli forces, mm -hmm. but it is sort of a sovereign space to Muslim Arabs and, and uh, Palestinians. It's a very interesting place to find yourself. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, we found out a few years ago that even the First Lady, Laura Bush, could find herself in trouble there because she's got all this protection and everything. And yet there were people that were making her very, very uncomfortable mm -hmm. on the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you figure future history 
is going to be fulfilled in this prophetic way where there's going to be a return of a temple. If it means that somehow there's going to be a displacement of the Arab Palestinians in particular uh, people who have the second holiest place in their religion sitting square in the middle of it. Now, as I've come to know the Lord, the one of the things that's really been clear to me is, is that uh, there really are demarcations between good and evil. And I'm going to say something that might seem a little bit reckless, but it would seem that it would be consistent with God's behavior and with the world as the Bible knows it for the most sacred place in Jerusalem to Muslims to actually be a highly sacred pagan center for Romans. And in fact, the place that was holy to Jews and to Jesus was not there. So go with me on this a little bit. Okay. Research has indicated now below the Al-Aqsa Mosque in a valley just below the Temple Mount, there is a place called the City of David. Mm -hmm. It's the oldest place uh, name and some of the oldest dwellings in that whole city mm -hmm. down in that little space below. And it is believed that the Temple of Solomon, the temple that Ezra tried to rebuild, and the temple that was eventually rebuilt by Herod, may very well have been uh, on top of the site where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. And so Mount Zion is this place of particular consequence in the whole biblical history. And if you look at... Uh, there's a place in, in uh, Roman history called the Temple to Jupiter at Baalak, Baalak, B-A-A-L, or Baalbek, I mean, I'm sorry, Baalbek, I said it wrong. And it has the exact same dimensions as the Temple Mount, a Roman temple to Jupiter. And you're the expert on Greek and Roman mythology between the two of us. So who's Jupiter? He's the big boss. <clears throat> he's the big boss. So he's the number one god among the Romans. Mm -hmm. He's would be like Zeus. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. so, so it's interesting that the Temple Mount, as it stands today in Jerusalem, has the exact same dimensions as a temple to Jupiter in another location. There are other indications that this would explain Roman methodology and Jewish outrage during the time of the Roman occupation. Because the Temple Mount would have been the highest place and the building that was the highest around before the Romans came along. But then the Romans, being great engineers, they say, uh-uh. You can have your thing, but we're going to keep an eye on you. And if you remember in scripture and history, the Jews were outraged because the Romans had actually erected something that was taller than the temple. And they did it for very strategic reasons mm -hmm. because they saw it as a hotbed of rebellious activity. Mm -hmm. So they wanted an Antonia fortress is mm -hmm. what it's called to have parapets that were high enough that they could look down into the temple area yep. and know what those people were up to. Right. You look at the time when, when uh, Paul was arrested and actually to save him 
from outraged Jews. Uh, he was arrested by a Roman officer who happened to be watching down into the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. and, and so you get the very strong sense that the Romans built something that would say, you can have your God, but just remember Rome is bigger. Rome is more awesome. It's very Roman. Yeah. So it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that what looks like the biggest, tallest thing around, archaeologically speaking, is the Temple Mount as we know it today. And the fact that Jesus even, even said to his disciples that when the Romans, or he, he didn't say the Romans, but he said when the temple is torn down, there won't be one stone left. So the fact that there's nothing left to indicate that there was ever a temple. So what's, just for arguments purposes, what's the deal with all of those stones that we saw when we were there? Mm -hmm. There's massive cut stones below the temple. Right. Where it would appear that when the temple fell those were knocked down right so for argument's sake what was knocked down the first time then or the second time like right if it wasn't the temple then what was it well it very well could have been the temple i mean if they displaced this entire massive structure and all of its surrounding buildings because those stones are massive like they're not moving right no one's moving those without if, a lot of work if they displaced it it had to go somewhere right and the wall that the Jews hold sacred, because it is all that's left of the temple, mm -hmm. they believe, um, may very well have been something that predated the Roman occupation. But it didn't necessarily mean that it predated, or that it was, it predated it, but it didn't necessarily mean that it was part of the temple. Hmm. It could very well have been part of the outer courts of the temple. It could have been you know, part of the existing city and fortifications that were already there. You know, this place has been occupied for 6,000 years. So it's, it's had a lot of handiwork done on it. But the, the real uh, indicator that sort of sews up this possibility, this potentiality, is that there are archaeological finds in the city of David that they have located the Spring of Gihon, and the Spring of Gihon is associated in Scripture with the location of the temple. And guess where the Spring of Gihon is? It's in the city of David. There are all kinds of underground archaeological uh, digs going on right now and discoveries that have indicated that much of the topography has been changed by engineering and that in the time of Jesus, it looked totally different. And so all the models, all the images, all the things we've seen to show how the temple probably looked back in the day are all built around assumptions made about that platform where the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock is. Everyone is operating under the assumption that it had to be there because it's the only place where such a structure could have been. Hmm. But we're not accounting for the possibility that the Romans had enough significant engineering ability and enough pride and enough sort of will to dominate that they did everything in their power to make sure, especially after 70 AD, that those people were completely and utterly suppressed. 
And so they turn the Antonia Fortress into, because once they've defeated the Jews after 70 AD, the military fortress itself isn't as significant anymore. It doesn't mm -hmm. need to be a fortress anymore. And so it evolves into a temple to Jupiter. And there's evidence of that. And there's reason to think that uh, all of these findings, uh, and you have to understand that like some of the stuff we've seen in that uh, uh, historical park that's right there below the Al-Aqsa Mosque and right in that area that we've visited, Robinson's Arch, all of that kind of stuff. Those things, they, they very well could have been part of the temple because it's likely that the Romans built this thing right up to the edge of the temple grounds, you know, that they just, they just said, yeah, you can have your thing, but here's ours, almost like a set of stairs, you know. So, um, and, and it kind of goes with, the one thing that's kind of mind-boggling about historical affairs is, is that they may have spent a person's entire lifetime doing these things, but all of history moved at the same speed, so we still review it compressed. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can't compare how society ran and how things got done in those days with how things run and how they get done in these days. It took two or three years to move an army across the continent so that you could finally take down an enemy, mm -hmm. and the enemy was counting on that, and that's why... They would have sieges mm -hmm. because they would hold these people captive within their walls until they could move enough military force in place mm -hmm. to defeat their enemies. So they just made sure they cut off all their supplies, which can be done with a relatively small force. Mm -hmm. Well, in the same way, if it takes two or three years to get something done, it's completely plausible that the Romans spent years kind of diminishing the influence and the significance of the temple by creating something that was bigger, badder, and more significant. And it seems very unlikely that the Romans would have had any tolerance at all for having a sort of secondary status in a land that they occupied. That's not their MO. They never operated that way. <clears throat> what makes this theory interesting is that if it proves to be true, and this could very well happen in your lifetime, when there becomes, let's say, irrefutable evidence that the temple doesn't have to be located where the Dome of the Rock is mm -hmm. in order to be in its proper location, if that were to happen, then suddenly a way of fulfilling prophecy becomes open that doesn't involve World War III because, you know, everybody thinks that if you try to displace the Muslims from the Temple Mount, you're going to have an all-out war. And it could be that, you know, and there's been all these theories about how there might be some sort of peace accord that leads to a coexistence so that you have the Dome of the Rock right next door to the Temple Mount. And, but neither one of the parties in that particular scenario are going to be content to have the second best place on the Temple Mount. It's just not going to happen, you know what I mean? And, and so no matter how you look at this thing playing out, it always seems like there's going to be some major, major conflict over trying to get a temple erected on the current location that's called the Temple Mount. 
But if it turns out that you can move 400 yards to one direction or the other and have it placed exactly, and if you can prove that in a way that people can't disagree with, I mean, reasonable people, then all of a sudden you've opened the possibility of a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. And if that were the case, that would be one of those, Israel is our timeline mm -hmm. for prophetic history. How's that strike you? I see a lot of weird expressions on your face that look like thinking. It's thinking. I don't know. I think I just need to go back and see for myself again. Well, I think I'll have to help you make that happen. <laughs> just so happens at the time this is being recorded, we are planning another trip to the Holy Land. We look to go a year from now in October of 2019. And, uh, you know, when we get there, who knows what we'll see. And I was just thinking about the teachings. I've wanted to go to the. I've wanted to go to the city of David mm -hmm. on previous trips. Mm -hmm. Three times I've been. I still haven't really done anything more than drive by city mm -hmm. of David. I'd like to go in there. And yeah, there's the teaching steps. Well, because that was just a really special place for me. And well, and you can't deny the vibe you get from from some of the locations. Right. And I'm. And that's what I mean. The, the teaching steps were very. That was probably one of my more. I don't know, profound experiences. I just, uh, sitting on those teaching steps was very, and I don't know. Well. The fact that they might not be a part, uh, or that they, yeah, like I said, I need to go look again. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're not, okay? And I'm not trying to make this theory work. What, yeah. I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is that the the thing that I feel strongly about is not so much the idea that there is in fact a different location for the Temple Mount that that doesn't ja that doesn't get my juices flowing like the idea that what we see just because it seems to be the perfect place to put such a thing is in fact the Temple Mount in other words an awful lot of assumptions have been made throughout the history of that location built around the idea that because you have this great, huge, and it is really, as archaeology goes, it's a pretty remarkable place. It is a huge, flat surface built by relatively ancient people mm -hmm. without the kind of technology we have now that sits in the middle of everything there. And it certainly is an impressive structure. And so it's and not... beautiful. Yeah. It's and stunning. But to assume that it is sort of a cheap uh, sort of attachment to an existing structure. In other words, to assume that just because of its impressive nature, it has to have been one, one infidel cult after another sort of using it for their own purposes. So... So, the, so I guess what I'm saying is the thing that I'm okay with is that it might not have been a place that was originally made special by Solomon, mm -hmm. destroyed, sure. then made special again by Herod, destroyed, made special again by the Romans, destroyed, then made special again by the Arabs, uh, Muslims. That That's the assumption everybody's operating on. They're all operating. I mean, and when I say everybody, I mean the general consensus is... The, especially among the ignorant, and I mean that in a, in a not in a condescending way, just those who aren't schooled in this area, they just assume that that's how this goes. You know that that uh, 
you know, you got the same little plot of ground and everybody just tears down the building on top of it and puts a different building net. But, but there's every reason to think that the successive generations of, of ideologies, because ideologies are way more powerful than governments. Mm -hmm. Ideologies are way more dangerous than, than a rule of law. Mm -hmm. And so the Romans come in and they want to replace the ideology of the Jews with the rule of law. Mm -hmm. But then the Muslims come along after the Romans and they want to replace the rule of, of law with an ideology. And what do they do? They don't just knock the building down and put something else on top of it. They built something entirely different. They, they t I, to put it one way, th this is, I, I don't want to digress into something ridiculous, but, but I remember after 9-11, my, my feeling was is that they should build two twin towers right back up where they built, where those two stood. You know, that, that uh, they should do the same thing they did at the Pentagon, just put it back up again and say, yeah, you knocked it down, we put it back up again. But instead, they dilly-dallied for a decade, and then they built something entirely different. Well, okay. But they've also, as much as built a monument to all of those who died, which was horrible, they've also built a monument to the terrorists who killed them. And so I'm of the thought that it would have been better to put those towers back up again. Mm -hmm. Make them stronger, make them whatever, but put them right back up again. The Roman way, or even the Muslim way, back in Jesus' day, back in those days, would have been to say, <laughs> we're going to wipe out lower Manhattan and build something entirely different. And then you're going to say, whatever happened to all of that? And they're going to say, whatever happened to what? You right. see what I mean? Right. That, that's what I'm driving at. Is, is it's, it's, so whether or not the actual temple turns out to be in what now looks to be the city of David, it could be some cross between the two. It could be the city of David extended further up than it does now, and that over the years of replacing what was there, uh, they've kind of encroached upon the city of David. So it could be that the temple and the Gohan Spring or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, they can still be located, but the grounds as they once were Because, are like, the ritual baths and stuff are there. Like, yeah. And for all we know, they were on the north side of the temple, and all this time we thought they were on the south side of the temple, if you get what I'm mm -hmm. saying. I mean, that's so. so that part has to be worked out. Yeah. But what I'm open to is the idea that what is there doesn't have to be the location just because it's a spectacular piece of archaeological historical engineering. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all I'm saying. Okay. And like I, I said, I really just feel like I need to see it. But bringing it back to the we'll passage that it. we just read, what makes it interesting about the passage we just read is, is that part of God's plan for the end of days is to have them draw out the lines of the Temple Mount to measure it out. It's like, mm -hmm. we're so I wanted to bring it full circle because the whole reason I bring this up in the first place is because we're hearing in this passage that they're going to redraw the lines and they're going to go back to putting that temple back up again. And how's this going to happen? Mm -hmm. If not World War III. Maybe because it isn't going to have to be exactly where everybody thinks it should be. 
and maybe in a and, and I I hesitate to say this, but it's my twisted sense of humor. It would be kind of funny if the Jews were able to go, nah, nah, keep your stupid dome of the rock. It's not that important anyway. It's just over there. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I'm not. You know, I'm in in no way am I asking people to do that. <laughs> I'm just saying. It would be kind of amazing if the Jews were able to say, you know, for years we've wondered how in the world we could displace you people and have our temple back. And now we've realized we don't have to. Go ahead and keep your platform. Have fun with it. You know, knock yourself out. I think that would be more in keeping with the God that I understand. Yes. Because I don't. He promised, and this is a digression a little bit, but he promised okay. he was going to look out for Isaac, absolutely, but he also promised to take care of Ishmael. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, that's you know? brilliant. That's brilliant. And yet, there's a history mm-hmm. with the people of Ishmael. Oh, absolutely. That involves names that suggest all kinds of untoward behavior. Absolutely, but God... God said that he was going to take care of him, too. Yep. So to me, God makes a promise he's not going back on it. And that would be what would that would actually win me over to this idea more than my actual knowledge of what the temple looks like from going. Yeah. Because I don't think God's master plan would involve. utter. I don't know. You know what I mean? No, I'm with you. And I I like the way you're I like the way you're thinking. And I will say that even if it's not the temple, standing on the temple mount looking out at the Mount of Olives is an experience that people should have because it is wild to think about what's going to go down in that, across that valley. Like that is an incredible experience to look across there and see all of those graves and think about all those people in those graves that are going to be, I just, yeah. That is wild. Well, it's kind of funny because when you're on the Mount of Olives looking back over at the Temple Mount, yep. you see this one gate that is closed up. Yep. By, and Purposefully the, mu- the Muslims closed, up. closed it up because the Crusaders were convinced that that, that was, was the, the one t- Jesus yeah. was going through when he entered the Temple. Yep. Uh, and called himself Messiah. They, yep. So so the, the Crusaders put a tremendous significance on that because they decided that was the spot. Yeah. And so what did the Muslims do? They closed it up and no Christian or Jew can get anywhere near that yep. gate right now. Yep. And you got to you gotta kind of laugh. And it, it sort of supports my theory that if the conquerors want to suppress your ideology, they'll go all out. Oh, for sure. And, and so it's kind of an and interesting And it also concept. makes you wonder why there, because I think I said this at 14 when I stood on the Mount of Olives with you. I remember saying something about this. Kind of makes you wonder... You know, they say that he wasn't the Messiah, but they were scared enough that they closed mm-hmm. that gate up. And I just think that's really interesting. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, there's a strange sort of mindset there that says, why, you know, uh, why would you block it up if he's... If you're not convinced he's the guy. Yeah. And honestly, if you think that blocking it up is going to keep him right, going through right. it, then you don't understand who he is. You don't know Jesus. <laughs> but I, my mind wanders. I, I've become a student of the Crusades and all of this because it's just clear to me that all of it is, is uh, significant to the story of mm-hmm. Christianity and, and Judaism and everything. And so, you know, you have to understand that the Muslims are still pretty upset about the Crusades even now. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the the way the, the Crusaders fought amongst themselves and the various factions they had. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the Muslims were definitely uh, deeply affected by the presence of these white people from Europe. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not hard to imagine them blocking it up. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to imagine them thinking that that would keep a real son of God from right. from going through that gate, you know. But if it was just to torment the people that had tormented yeah, you. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I guess that's the idea. <laughs> well, all right, so you started reading about the two witnesses. We did. You want to take us a little further on mm-hmm. that, please? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then... Lost my place. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. So the reason that I lost my place is because I noticed a tense change and it really threw my brain off. Mm-hmm. But the, the tense changes from present to past right which is kind of weird like it's it's well and it's actually it's like future tense to past tense because it's talking about what's going to happen when the prophets are doing it and then after after they die and then it's been three and a half days it switches to past tense it says a breath of life from god entered them right and that really messed with my brain but and it's I don't know if it's significant or not, but it's weird that it goes from like future tense to past tense. So my first thought is, is that we did hear that they prophesied for over a thousand days. It says they will prophesy. Right. They will prophesy for over a thousand days. Uh, that's a long time. That's, uh-huh. that's uh, a few years. Yeah. It's like over three years. Right. And it's almost as though, you know, John's view from, from, uh, outside of space and time he's kind of jumped from one point to another if that that may be one way to interpret okay. it okay um so so uh, there's some really cool uh evidence of who these two guys probably are yes and i think this is one of the coolest things in revelation so Me too. um <laughs> so we start let's say with jeremiah mm-hmm I mean, Jeremiah, I mean, Joshua. <laughs> I, I was doing this when we were preaching Joshua. 
So we start with Joshua. Um, he sets he sends two spies into uh, Jericho. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Uh, this is very unradio professional. Um, he sends uh, these two spies in. Uh, I like the commentator who said they really ought to be called two witnesses, and here's why. Because they really didn't spy out anything of any value strategically. What they did do was somehow win over Rahab and her family so that she became their ally. Yep. And God has protected them and even made her part of his lineage. Mm -hmm. So she turned out to be pretty special. And it all started with these two guys who witnessed to her, mm -hmm. who told her about the power of God and where God was coming from, where they were coming from and what God had done to get them that far. And somehow she's convinced and she says, I'll help you if you promise to spare me. And, and there's every reason to think she didn't just do it for self-preservation. She threw her, she gave her life to God. Right. And I think we can agree that that's probably the case because then who's her kid, Boaz, you know, who's mm -hmm. her descendant, Jesus. Yeah. So it's pretty fair bet that Rahab was pretty special and it started with two witnesses. Then you have, um, uh, oh, I'll just jump ahead to the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm -hmm. Two guys show up, mm -hmm. Moses and Elijah. And then you have uh, at the... Uh, uh, resurrection of Jesus. There are two guys, and and they're described as men. Mm -hmm. And some people just say they're angels, but they're described as men. Right. And then there are two men who are there when Jesus ascends to heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, Torah law says that wherever anything is valid, there will be at least two witnesses. So Nothing counts if it's just one witness. It always has to have two witnesses. Right. So every significant affirmation uh, from heaven is accompanied by two witnesses. Mm -hmm. The affirmations of Jesus accompanied by two witnesses. The, the affirmation of his resurrection, two witnesses. Mm -hmm. The affirmation of his ascension. Mm -hmm. uh, and not that he just went to live in exile somewhere. Two witnesses. And... The interesting thing is, is those two guys are identified at the Mount of Transfiguration as Moses and Elijah. Mm -hmm. Those are both guys who had particular powers that had been given to them by God, or at least God worked miracles through them uh, in a particular way. Mm -hmm. You know, Moses and the plagues, Elijah and, and his being able to make fire come down and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so lo and behold, these two guys show up at the, at, and we know it's Jerusalem because it says it's the place of, of the crucifixion, but they're metaphorically referred to as Sodom and Egypt, which, by the way, in my mind, Sodom is um, and Gomorrah are always associated with uh, sexual immorality, perversion, all kinds of really just bizarre human behavior. But Egypt is always associated with demonic, uh, half human, half you know, uh, mm -hmm. people with heads that actually fit inside those funny hats they wore, you know, all this kind of stuff. So so what we see is, is that Israel and Jerusalem in particular at this point in the story has descended into a perversion of morality and some kind of weird demonic activity. And you can't help but associate Egypt with Moses too. And the Elijah Sodom one is a little less direct, but I do associate Elijah with. Well, the priest of Baal. Right. Well, that's what I was about to say. I'm I associate I associate him with things that are similar to Sodom. Right. So. 
that's kind of the point in the right direction. Yeah. Too. Especially since, you know, they can call down fire from their mouths, apparently, uh-huh. and bring plagues to the earth. And the plagues that are mentioned are plagues that have happened mm-hmm. with Moses, by Moses. I mean, not by Moses, by God through Moses, but. That's anyway. right. Well, and so it's very interesting that that uh, these guys are are there all the time prophesying and people hate them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely hate them. And I started thinking about that today before we got ready to record. And I thought, you know, sure, they probably hated them for what they said. But then I thought, no, look what's already happened to the world up to this point. And up to this point, you know, because we've seen world leaders who would rather, you know, they say they think it'd be better if they just crawled under the earth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's because we spread this out over weeks, we forget that a lot of really terrible things have happened and these these people are afraid and they're the last of their kind yeah and they resort to immoral behavior Mm -hmm. and stuff because that's generally what people do Mm -hmm. you know eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die is sort of a very human mindset it's uh uh you know generally one kind of person seeing imminent disaster praise and another kind of person says well i might as well go into disaster loaded or whatever Mm -hmm. and so so there are two ways that people generally respond to impending doom and we're hearing that jerusalem is being described as people putting their faith in anything other than the god who's behind this and putting their flesh uh you know the wants of their flesh out there you know because it's like hey you know we don't know when the next plague is going to hit we don't know when the next comet's going to fall from this guy Mm -hmm. and then these guys are there saying you know what do you think they prophesied about you know you're stupid because it's god who did this you know so they're telling them what's really going on and and it's kind of like the world's probably gotten really comfortable without christians and evangelists and people like that around thumping their bibles and telling them because the what is the most common complaint against christians is that we're all trying to condemn people's behavior that we're all trying to judge people and everything and and there's a certain part of that that i could talk about because i do think christians have messed up over the generations because they're too judgmental Mm -hmm. um you're holding people to an unrealistic standard until they become believers then it's a different story and even then we have to treat people with the same dignity and grace that god gave us but in reality, the people who really hate Christians and Jews and anybody who preaches morality to them, it's because they don't want to be told they can't do everything they want. They can't have everything they want. Mm-hmm. So I guess these guys really got on everybody's nerves. And, yeah, then, so. and then this world leader emerges and shows up in, in Jerusalem and he takes them out. Yeah, the beast. And there's an interesting little uh, sidelight there, you know. There's something I've been saying to people since I've been a pastor quite regularly. It usually happens in a nursing home or a hospital room, sometimes in a person's home. They're very old. They've been through a lot of physical problems. They've lost a lot of people they love. They're ready to die. And they look at me and they say, why can't I die? And as a pastor, that's a really hard question to answer. It's really hard because it's painful. But the answer I give them is the only one I can give them. And that is, is well, I guess you're not done until God says so. This passage says that they were protected mm-hmm. from every attempt on them until they were done. And then they were allowed to die. Which I was just thinking, I think is interesting, mostly with Moses, because Elijah is kind of a different story. But Moses died. Yeah. 
and went to heaven, you know, I assume. I feel like Moses is probably with God, especially since he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah. But he died. Yep. And now he's back. If our if our understanding is correct that this is Moses and Elijah, now he's back and he dies again and then is resurrected. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and boy, I'm going to go off on a small little tangent because there is a possibility that Moses... I mean, the scripture says he died, and that's right. fine. But but there's this weird story in Jude about how the archangel Michael, there's only one. Yeah. And some people think if there was anybody who would have been qualified to stand the gap and be the giant angel with the little bitty scroll, it could have been Michael. Yeah. If not Jesus. And none other than Michael the archangel is fighting Satan for the body of Moses. What is right. up with that? Yeah. And why is that in our scriptures? And, and, and it makes you wonder what really happened to Moses. Right. Um, you know, uh, was he, as Catholics believe about Mary, assumed and not actually died? Right. You know, so we have what we call the assumption of Mary, and there's a there's a Catholic belief about that, but I wonder if this wasn't something like what happened to Moses, because it is interesting that these two guys keep appearing, and one is clearly stated as not having died. Right, Elijah, like Elijah, we the, we were told he that he, he he didn't die. Yeah, he's taken away. And we're told that Moses was in perfectly good health on yeah. his last day. Yeah, you know, it says plainly that he was fine. But he wasn't allowed to go. And then we have this weird story in Jude about how Michael yeah. fought to collect his body. And it, there's a sense that something unusual happened with Moses, too. Yeah. I find that interesting. I do, too. You know, I don't know that it matters that much, but it's no, curious. Well, it just it seems interesting to me that he could die twice and then be resurrected. Yeah. Versus like Elijah being taken up and then coming back for this appointed time. Yeah. To die and be resurrected. Yeah. And this really is fascinating. Um, and may, like among the first. You know, the whole world be... is rejoicing because these two guys are dead. They're dancing around their bodies. They're giving presents to each other. Also, it's three like, and a half days they laid in the street and then they came back to life. That had to be terrifying. Gross. That will have to be terrifying. I mean, can you imagine the. They were probably really yeah. nasty, juicy, like. Not yeah. to be gross or anything, but that's a long time. We don't like to think of people this way, but when we think of roadkill that we've seen, Ooh. you know, we see a deer that's been struck by a car and it's been on the same stretch of road for three or four days. Yeah. That's what happens to any yeah. body, any any natural human body or, or mammal body or fish or whatever, you know, a living thing. Once it ceases to live, loses all its life function, it goes through the same putrefaction process. Well, and I actually think, and this is a little... Anyway, I actually think it could have happened even faster because with every, like all of the crazy stuff that had happened, yeah. the atmosphere has totally changed. That's right. Literally, like... They could have been bones by three days. Like, it... Well, I yeah, I think that it could have happened a lot faster because cause we have no idea, like, what, at this point, what life on earth is like as far as temperature it could be scorchingly hot it could be freezing like we don't know sure, because sure. of everything else that has happened that's affected change on the earth so they could be really gross you're right which means that and when they are they resurrected back. when when they're well resurrected i we assume i mean i think when the they breath come of life back to life God. yeah when they come back to life it had to be 
terrified. Yeah, terror struck those who saw them. I would be terrified to see something like that. And there's there's evidence because the passages indicate this that people were watching twenty four seven. Yeah. Um, one of the commentators that I like says, you know, in the days of twenty four hour news, webcams, you know, I could sit and watch the corpses decay on my, you know, uh, two evil witnesses webcam right if i'm (laughs) like when everybody was watching the giraffe waiting for it to have a baby yeah and they literally (laughs) they literally could do this yeah and then they see somehow all the flesh and everything return and then these guys ascended yeah i love that god's like come back yeah i miss you yeah can you imagine the conversation (laughs) that moses and elijah had uh uh on the way up you know it's like (laughs) what a trip right like, because they've been around for a lot of things, and then they're like, well, this was interesting. Uh, <laughs> like, I, oy vey, I need a vacation. Like, <laughs> he told us what was going to happen. You but. know, I've been down there preaching for three years, and, and, and then I have to lay there dead for three and a half days. I'm Boy, am I ready for a vacation. You know, Elijah, you want to go fishing? <laughs> and I don't know, preaching maybe really unsuccessfully, it sounds like. Like, that would be exhausting. Yeah. Even if it's those two who are pretty amazing, but like that would be really frustrating. Three yeah. years trying to do something supernatural in a way, but still human. Yeah, you know. and still, I would assume, still with their hearts for God, hearts wanting other people to be for God. That'd yeah. be really frustrating. And then they, and then they get. Not only do they die, but the beast from the abyss is what gets them. Yeah. And they probably, I, w- I mean, I don't know how much God reads and reads them into the plan, but I would think if anybody's going to get read into the plan, it's going to be Moses and Elijah. And so they, like, they go three years knowing that at the end of the three years, the beast from the abyss is going to get them and they're going to be, I mean, I guess the good news is God's like, don't worry, it won't last. But I, I guess once you start hanging around with God as much as those two guys have <laughs> up to this point in human history... Um, they're pretty well compl- confident in, in his yeah. method of operation or mode of operation. So. I would say so. Well, what else can we do? I know there's a little bit more left, but I'm wondering if it changes gears in a way that we might want to save. I think we should probably shave, save, goodness me, save the next part of the chapter for next time. Probably. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good idea, so. too, because it changes after this. So we've finished mm-hmm. at verse what? 14. Chapter 11, verse 14 is where we left off. The so second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. So we're going we're gonna to say woe for now and then pick up the woe next time at verse 15 of chapter 11. Mm-hmm. So uh, pretty good. Any, any other thoughts you want to add to this? No, I'm just really excited that we got to this one. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty cool. I mean, there's lots of other cool stuff coming, so don't worry, guys, but... You know, we sit here and say it's really cool, but we're really counting on being at uh, at a big feast while this is all going down. So that when Moses and Elijah can get back, we can be like, "Man, that was awesome, guys! Good job!" <laughs> yeah, we, we'll glad drink, it wasn't me. We will drink a toast. <laughs> Jesus is going to say, "Hey, everybody, stop just a minute. Raise your glasses. They're back. Moses and Elijah are back, and we need to drink a toast to them." <laughs> And they're back better than ever because they're resurrected. Yeah, you know, and and we're all going to go, you guys rock, man, you know. (laughs) Thanks for taking one for the team. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Okay. Um, I didn't get any special mail this week or anything. Uh, listeners, that's okay. I'm not trying to condemn you. I did you. see, an, I think there was something on the Facebook page. I saw, I'm trying to remember exactly what it said, but I think our friend Donna did post oh, you're right. a little note about just a, another little add-in to the conversation about the sour stomach thing. Yes, and I beg your pardon. I, Donna, that's okay. I that's what I'm here uh, for. You're right, but I, uh, I don't want to say I forgot, but I guess that's the only truthful thing I can say. But I remembered reading it. And uh, so I'm just looking it up real quick. And she was talking about that the, there's scriptural um, uh, precedence, so to speak, for that whole idea. And uh, so, you know, naturally I'm having trouble with... Uh, <laughs> I know she mentioned something along the lines of there are other places in scripture where a sweet mm-hmm. that thing words were sweet. Yeah, where where it comes off sweet but it leaves you with a sour stomach and and uh and, and I think if if I understood Donna correctly, the idea there was to say, look, you know, the word of God, it feels great. It's 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 but it's truth and sometimes the truth hurts. Mm-hmm. And and so that was kind of the, that the gist nasty of it. feeling in your stomach. You know, you, you feel a certain, uh, you know, well, I, I look at it this way. Um, two incidents come to mind. It was, was it Hezekiah? No, I can't remember who it was, but there was a certain Jewish king who uh, his workers had stumbled onto a copy of the law, which they had forgotten all about. And so he read it and then tore his cloak and, and repented because it was like, oh, my gosh. And, and then there's the time when the apostles are preaching after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then all these people go, brothers, what shall we do? And it's this idea that, that, that it's an overwhelming reality, but it also leaves you in a state of desperation. And so it's, it's sweet and it's sour mm-hmm. at the same time. And, uh, yeah, here's what she said. I thought there was somewhere else that eating the Lord's word turned sour. Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all refer uh, to eating the word and it being sweet in the mouth. But only in Revelation does it turn sour in the stomach. Hmm, Mm. she says. Well, Donna, you are a scholar Mm -hmm. and we appreciate your comment very much. Definitely. And uh, we really, really do enjoy having these uh, comments and sent to us. And, you know, it just gives us a, a, a you know, because because the other thing we want to do is we want you to hold us accountable. This whole business of, of teaching the Bible, uh, this is a Bible study. Mm-hmm. And, and what I would hope is, is that if you're ever asked to lead a Bible study at your church or in a small group or something, don't don't think you have to be. Uh, a seminary trained pastor. In fact, seminaries are notorious for really screwing up perfectly good Christians. Mm-hmm. So I'm just telling you the truth. It's, uh, it's, it's, and it uh, can't be any worse than me because I'm kind of notorious for having kind of whacked out ideas. Yeah, it, it's really about critical thinking, and we talk about this all the time because the more important skill for Bible study is critical thinking. Mm -hmm. All of the information that I can provide because I'm trained and experienced and I've read a lot and all that, that's all really useful because it saves you having to look it up. But guess what? You can look it up. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to be a scholar before you start studying scripture or have a scholar for a Sunday school teacher. What you need is somebody who's willing to say, let's learn together. 
And as long as one person or two is willing to just provide that little bit of leadership and motivation, mm -hmm. uh, you can find out whatever you need to know. I think just somebody who's excited about the best book ever. Yeah, exactly. And an amazing yeah. book. Right. We were talking in Sunday or uh, Wednesday night Bible study about what an amazing book it is because it is so precise and yes. so remarkable. Well, we've we've hit one hour, my dear. Okay. And uh, so I hope we get lots of listener mail this week because um, this was juicy, guys. Yeah. Please, uh, please tell us what you think. It's fun to hear from you. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, Bethany, I think I'm just going to say to everybody, we love you. Thank you. God bless you. And goodbye. <laughs>